Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the four degrees to the streets podcast. I'm Jasmine. She is Nemo. We are very excited to have you guys with us here today for episode four of our second season. Nemo, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Coming off of, I guess, the first major holiday weekend of the season. Um, So feeling rested, but somehow still tired (laughs) and always ready for a nap. How are you? There's never enough um, vacation days. I'm good. I'm up. I'm Adam. We're doing good. Yeah, so this is, as I said, we're just coming off of Thanksgiving weekend. So this episode, you all be getting on December 14th. Um, This is actually our last episode for the year. Um, We usually take the uh, week between Christmas and New Year's off. So we'll be back in January. Um, And if you all are missing us during that time, you can head to our Instagram or Twitter Um, and our link in the bio to subscribe to our email list. Um, And you can also catch up on our earlier episodes this season. Um, Episode three, we had a panel discussing urban planning um, as a career or not a career after choosing to study it. So just thanks again to Jasmine Burnett and Michelle Juma, um, who are our special guests. So there's a lot of information and wisdom in that episode that you don't want to miss, you can listen to it on Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your play playlist, <laughs> wherever you get your podcast. Um, confession, I'm more of a music person than a podcast person. But um, so today we're going to be talking about planning tools. So if you think about our last episode, we kind of got into a little bit about what we learned in school and how we apply it to our jobs. This is for all the planning nerds. Jasmine and I went back in the vault to think about what some of the tools we use during planning school and wanted to share that with everybody to give them a perspective and an insight on how they can find out more about where they live, where they work, where you like to play, um, anything relating to where to your space and where you are. Um, so we're gonna go through a few scenarios and the information that you can find, most of it online, to be helpful for you. So for instance, if you are moving to a new neighborhood, if you want to know how your city spends its money and then what it does with it in terms of planning and economic development, if you wanna learn more about affordable housing and what the plans are in that city, or if you also wanna see how equitable or inequitable the area that you live is in. So we're gonna talk about all of that today. So the goal for this episode truly relates to our overall goal for the podcast is to present non-planners and planners with the tools that they can use to solve problems or investigate things in their own community. Um, I would like to consider this like a second piece of a how-to episode, um, which 
our overall goal of the podcast is to provide people the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. That's what we say in the beginning of each episode. And so this episode, we're taking it literally to mean actual tools, um, tools that you can use to measure things, because we know that information is key and data is key. And now we have so much data available. How are we going to use it um, to answer and solve problems? And so I'll jump right in to our kind of first scenario. We framed it around moving to a new place, or rather you are looking to move to a new place, but you're unsure what neighborhood you want to live in. Um, and so what data tools can you use to answer questions about that place? But it doesn't necessarily have to be if you're moving to a new space. It's very much useful if you live in your neighborhood and you're just curious about some of the things that exist there. And so these are kind of the staple tools in um, any type of demographic research, whether it's in planning or sociology or geography, is the census. And so the United States, I'm sure it's pretty much every country has their version of a census, but it's a survey of the population, right? And so in the United States, we have a, a census every 10 years and then we also have these smaller community surveys that happen every one three and five years and so those are called the american community surveys so a really quick website that you can go to is census.gov slash quick facts and if you go to that site you can just type in any geography new york city chicago cook county um king county whatever county or town that you are curious about. And it will give you a breakdown of all of these different um, housing, transportation, economic, uh, population, age, sex, race and ethnicity data. Um, and so for example, you might be curious about how people commute in your neighborhood. So you wanna move to a city, but you don't have a car, you ride the train or you ride your bike. And so you wanna pick a place um, within a city that is um, accessible for you to ride trains or ride your bike. And so you might be curious about the means of transportation to and from work. And so there's a data table that the census collects that asks people, how do you commute to work? And you might wanna move to a place where the number, the percentage of people that ride the train is higher than the percentage of people that uh, drive their cars. You might be curious about the housing. So you might wanna know, well, how many housing units are there? Or how many of the housing units are owned by the person living inside of them and how many of them are renters? Um, what's the median gross rent for that area? So those are all um, questions you can answer using census data. Where the census data leaves off is that it doesn't have a visual component, right? Like you can imagine that um, any place, let's just pick Atlanta, for example, that census to quick facts are gonna give you data at the city of Atlanta level. So it's gonna be average across the city of Atlanta. If you wanna drill down and get specific into particular neighborhoods um, or what we call census tracts, you can, the census data is collected at multiple different geographies. Um, I believe the smallest is a census tract and then there's census block group and a couple of other ones. And then it, it goes up from there so that county is larger than city and state is larger than county and city like that. So it ranges up. This website, so, 
So if I think that the census doesn't happen often enough, I mean, it's every 10 years, they track it down. It's pretty quick. It could really take two minutes to do it. Some of the more specific information that you're talking about can be found in the uh, American community surveys that you say happen, that you said happens every one, three and five years. If I'm a resident, can I email the census and tell them that I want to participate in those American community surveys and that I want to give my input? I'm actually not sure. I know that it's a randomized process. So I'm not sure if you can contact them and, and volunteer your information. Um, I also know that for the community surveys, they kind of extrapolate every couple of years. Um, so they might not be going around and individually asking to extrapolate the data. Do you know? I think it's random. Like, I think you get randomly selected. I've never been selected. Um, but I think when thinking about like how specific they get kind of like we used to like a census track or a block group, I kind of think of it as like how you may see your zip code represented on a map or how you may see the ward um, that you live in. So it's kind of like wherever, whatever town or city you live in, it might be broken up even further um, to get in that stuff to some of those data points. So the mapping tool really helps you do that, right? Because you might want, now you're thinking about say you want to move somewhere, you say you want to move to LA, you don't just want to move to LA generally, what nape everything happens locally, right? So what neighborhood are you going to look at? So you can use this website called Social Explorer, and there's a ton of mapping tools, uh, but this is a free tool online. And you can type in city of LA and change the kind of data level. So you want to see it at the census track level or at the zip code level, like Nemo mentioned, then you can see all the different uh, data pieces. And so going back to commuting patterns, you can see that, oh, in Hollywood, for example, 27% uh, of the people commute by train. But in downtown LA, it's up to 50%. And so that level of data you can get using a mapping tool. It takes each of the data points and allows you to analyze them on a spatial level, which is why a lot of um, the work that people do in planning and different professions of the sort are called spatial analytics. So it's analytics, but it relates to a particular place or geography. And so that to me is kind of the core element of um, of a planning tool is like understanding all the different data points and pretty much all the tools that we'll talk about moving forward kind of stem from that main core census data that kind of underlines everything. So kind of following a similar theme, say you do just move to a city or you are interested in a specific city and what the people are like and what goes on there. You may also be interested in how the city spends their money. And then once you get a glimpse into their budget, really where everything kind of is, where a lot of the policy decisions are stemmed from, because if you do not have the resources to do it, then it most likely will not get done. But how do you read that information? It can be really um, overwhelming to think about the thousands and hundreds of pages and chapters to dig into what information you want to find or that's most helpful. Um, and then a little bit later, I'll talk about kind of when you want to see what more of that spending is on a planning level and a development level. 
Um, but last season, um, season one, episode eight, we had an episode called Where the Money Resides. We really got into the specifics of how cities formulate their budget and what that process is. So I'm not going to delve too much into that, but I will just share some quick tips once you find the information. And so most cities' websites, their budgets are published by the fiscal year. Um, and depending on what you're interested in, it may be interesting to focus on the specific changes and then get into the line by line for either that past year or the current year that you're in, depending on what you're looking for. And I say to focus on the changes because you could literally get lost in a number soup trying to see what goes on line by line. But most budgets will publish either in their chapter or in their narrative the description of what changed and what moved and what programs those, those are connected to. So that may be a good place to start. And then thinking about where the money is coming from. The main distinction that you want to notice is what's coming from the general fund or the non-general fund. So general fund includes taxpayer dollars, other fees and taxes. And those can be a little bit more discretionary to cover our um, core government functions, such as planning, for instance, fire and police, schools, health and human services, a lot of the basic things that we know governments across the country cover. Whereas the non-general fund, are those funds are usually dedicated for a specific purpose. And that revenue was generated with the specific purpose already in mind. So for instance, if there is a specific transit project that has earmarked transportation funds that might be federal, that might be state level, um, they cannot be used to build out a road or do paving. It's specifically designed for that use. So it's not as broad as what some of the things in the general fund may cover. And so once you really get into the documents, um, I would also suggest to observe the differences between what's planned, proposed, and approved, and what the actual spending is. Um, just because something is planned or approved, it can change throughout the year. And you can also see that, say you go back and look a year from then, you can see that, that what the actual spending was doesn't match what the approved spending was. And that can cause room for question, like why wasn't that spent? Why did the uh, department spend more than it was budgeted? And those might be areas that you're interested in as well. Um, and Just going back to those non-general fund items, um, this is a really unique opportunity where it might be like an initiative of a mayor or initiative of a, a state where that elected official has a kind of interest in a topic. So they kind of set up a non-general fund, say if they're really passionate about tree and landscaping. So they set up kind of a fund just to dedicate it to treescape landscaping across the city or in a lot of places there's an affordable housing trust fund right where developers are required to build affordable housing but they can make a payment and say okay I can't do it for my project but I'll put it into this fund and then that money has to be used to produce other affordable housing um, units instead of something else. Yeah, that's a really good example. Um, and, you know, some people may or may not agree with that, with that, if that's how the fund should be used. But I think there's a lot less room for some of that critique when it's being designated as a non-general for non-general purposes, because um, you can't really say, these are my tax dollars, you know, like you may be able to say for something that's more general um, for the city services. 
Um, and so in terms of a lot of what I've mentioned has kind of been on the operating side. Um, but if you have an interest in large infrastructure projects, if you want to see where new schools are being built, new libraries, where bridges may be repaired, um, you would want to look into the capital improvement section of the budget, also known as the CIP. And then if you just want a different view and a different lens of the budget, um, every jurisdiction is required to complete their comprehensive annual financial report from the previous year. And that is a little bit more of a high level accounting report that shows um, what was spent, where it was allocated, and it has a little bit more of a narrative. It's also a long document. I'll just warn you of that. Um, uh, so just be wary. It's not, it's not short, but you can uh, search a little bit in a little bit of a different way for what you're looking for. And then a few tools that'll be in the show notes. Um, the Urban Institute has a few interactive dashboards where you can compare state and local budgets to other jurisdictions. Um, you can really kind of select and deselect um, for the information that you're trying to find, whether it's around schools or transportation. Um, and then Pew, which I'll also link, they have a list of all the state websites where you can then find the websites for the local government if you're unable to find that as well. And so then once you have the budget information and kind of knowing where all the money is allocated, um, you may want to know, and if you're also listening to this podcast, where those resources are being spent in terms of planning or where they're being planned to be spent. And so I'm going to use Denver as an example because their website is pretty organized and transferable and is a pretty good blueprint of what you can find on most government websites. Um, they're also a consolidated city and county, so they have an increased level of capacity because they have certain municipal and administrative functions. So, you know, one city may not be able to, you may not see as much of what's going on in that town because maybe it lies within the county or the state, but they're a pretty good example where they have a lot of things happening within. Um, and so once you get to the planning or zoning website um, in Denver, specifically, they're called the Community Planning and Development Office you can find the comprehensive plan. Um, also a very large document that has the vision and the goals and future actions and aspirations for the city. And Denver in particular took three years of a public process to include what they wanted for their comprehensive plan 2040. Um, and that's pretty standard. It can take years to make updates to these documents um, as they plan 20 years out into the future. Um, and then it gets a little bit more specific. They also have a accompanying document that's that is specific for land use and transportation, but it's in line with their comprehensive plan, vision, and goals. So I love that you brought in the budget and then kind of the long-range planning because that gets into what you were talking about in terms of proposed, right? Like these are some proposed spending items that may or may not actually relate to their comprehensive plan because some things may be happening in Denver, for example, that are part of a statewide plan. And so the money's coming from the federal government and the state just happens to be happening in this particular city, even though the city might not have um, funds that they are putting towards the project themselves. Right. And it may not be super clear when you look at the budget alone to spell that apart. But then when you dig a little bit deeper and look into some of the plans, like I was mentioning, you can see, oh, okay, that's why this project's in there. This is like a regional goal um, or a statewide goal that they're also trying to account for. Um, on that site, you can also find specialized studies. So they 
could have a bicycle pedestrian master plan they could have a housing plan, um, neighborhood level, or sometimes also called small area plans. Um, and similarly to the comprehensive plan, they have to be reviewed by the planning board um, and then they make recommendations to the city council. And then those plans go to the specific city council committee. Um, and so that could vary in each city. It could be the housing, it could be the economic development committee, um, but they're gonna be over, whichever committee is over city planning and then it gets reviewed and adopted. So, you know, after years of the community engagement, it can also be a long process of many drafts to, um, to get it to actually be adopted. Um, other resources that might be interesting for planning, looking at the zoning map. And so that looks at what uses and activities and building types can be in different areas, whether it's industrial, commercial, single family, residential, multi-unit, so like apartment buildings and where schools can be built. And then getting to a deeper level is the parcel maps. So zoning shows what can be, what an area can be used for, um, whereas the parcel tells you more information about who owns the land. And this is where you see a lot of discrepancies, right? Because the zoning might say this area is um, supposed to be all single family, but when you look at the parcel map, you may actually see some duplexes and triplexes and quadplexes in that same area that's quote unquote zoned single family. And a beauty shop or whatever. Yeah, anything, <laughs> right? An industrial building. And so it's not perfect. <laughs> it's not right. perfect. <laughs> right. Um, and I think, you know, just really thinking back to what you see in a lot of the plans, um, it may not, it just may not give you a full picture. And so there's limitations to a comprehensive plan. Um, a lot of times people will say it's really high level. It doesn't address what present day issues they're having, um, whereas some economic development plans may get a little bit more to what financial needs um, people are dealing with in their communities. Um, I talked about how long the process can be, um, some of the issues with hearing input from all residents. Um, and even though a lot of states may legally require jurisdictions to complete a comprehensive plan or even incentivize them to do a plan, most are not legally binding. So they can have a lot of aspirations, but as Jasmine mentioned, you may not ever see those come up in the budget, um, really just depending on how uh, determined the government is to use the comprehensive plan as a policy-making tool. And I think that's the most unfortunate piece about the comprehensive plan. And you'll hear this in kind of um, the episode that came out earlier when we had interviews um, with people who study planning but don't necessarily work in planning. That was the most frustrating piece of planning for me, right, is that I was spending time working on these master plans, working on these comp plans or on the bicycle and pedestrian plans and not seeing the ideas translate into a budget line item um and it's kind of disheartening right because you are doing your research using all this data to produce a document that you're hoping would guide the city's trajectory and then realizing you know money make the world go round and if ain't no money allocated towards it it's just an idea on a piece of paper and so you can literally go back to comprehensive plans that were written in 2000 and you can literally still see items that have not been touched have not been addressed new priorities have come in and so an old idea old proposal has not been replaced and that parcel of land is still vacant or it's still an undesirable land use or whatever the case may be yeah or that station you know near your 
um, near home still has no development happening around it. Um, so just really, even as a resident, I can imagine if someone was really invested in the comprehensive plan process, um, and then not having those, uh, some of those promises delivered in a timely way, um, just because it's 20 years out, doesn't mean you have to take 20 years to do it. <laughs> so, um, but I would still recommend, uh, folks to get involved in the process. Cause you learn a lot, um, about the different priority areas of the city, really all the topics that we kind of cover in the podcast. Um, but if you are more interested in like what's happening present day and how that may affect your pockets, um, the economic development, sometimes planning and economic development and city websites are together in Denver, they're um, separate. Um, it's their economic development and opportunity office. Um, and so for instance, they have a plan um, called Rise Denver that specifically addresses COVID recovery, um, where they are describing how they're going to invest their, a lot of the federal funds they received um, and stimulus dollars. Um, and then they also have their economic development and opportunity strategic plan, Propel Denver. Um, and really one of their, part of their mission is we believe everyone should have the opportunity to make a home, get a job and build a future. So those may be things that you're like, well, I need to know how to do that. If I'm planning to move to Denver, let me see what they're talking about um, on their website. Planning, economic development, I feel like they should always go together um, because they are one in the same. So the next tool we're going to talk about is um, it's not necessarily a tool as much as it is a methodology. Yeah, that's what I'll call it. I'll call it a methodology. And so we're going to talk about affordable housing and the way that it is, the rents for it are calculated and strategies strategies that you can use to find affordable housing opportunities. And so we talk a lot about affordable housing, affordable housing, affordable housing. One thing that always is relevant to me is that all housing is affordable, right? So if you live somewhere, um, it should be affordable to you based on your income category. The challenge why we have to make a quote unquote affordable housing policies, affordable housing trust funds and do all of these things to incentivize um, housing that is affordable to people at lower incomes is because there is not enough supply of rental or for sale units that are affordable to people with moderate or low incomes. There's tons, if you have, you make 100K a year, you can find a place to live everywhere. But if you make 40 or you make 30 or you make 50, if you have a larger family, it's not very easy to find housing. And so we have to incentivize affordable housing. So the main way that um, a unit is determined affordable is based on its um affordability control or in the the calculation that uses the area median income so we refer to it as an am as ami so the area median income is a calculation of the quote-unquote regions median household income based on household size it pulls information from the census data primarily income and household size data from the census that we talked about earlier but Area can be anything. Nima, when you think area median income, what area do you think is considering? What's the size of the geography that you think is appropriate? I usually think of it, I mean, I've lived in cities for the past few years, but I usually think of it at 
the city level, but I also think it could be regional um, depending on the jurisdiction. Like I live in DC, so I know a lot of the statistics are based on the DC, Maryland and Virginia region. Um, so yeah. So that's what makes it interesting, right? Cause when I think about area, I'm actually thinking about the neighborhood, right? Maybe one or two neighborhoods. So for that reason, the federal government has a standard. And so what they use is called the fair market rent area or the FMR area. And you can find out what your FMR area is by going to hudusergovernor and you can type in your zip code and it will tell you what your um, area is that is used to calculate not just affordable housing, but also market rate housing as well. And so, for example, I'm going to look at New York. So New York has five boroughs, the Bronx, Staten Island, Queens, Brooklyn, and Manhattan. So the Bronx is its own county. It's in Bronx County, but it's within the New York New York, so New York City, New York, um, HUD metro area. So that area includes Bronx County, Kings County, New York County, Putnam County, Queens County, Richmond County, and Rockland County. So that's all the five boroughs plus two non-New York City um, counties, that being Putnam and Rockland County. And so that is the geography that's used to calculate affordability for any neighborhood in any of those seven counties right and so now that you know your area then you can determine what the area median income is for your area for your fair market rent area based on HUD's statistics so keeping with the Bronx as the example the AMI the area median income for the New York New York fair market rent area is $73,873. This, however, is not specific to any one household size. So then you go into the AMI chart and you can find this chart by going to that same website, HUD user, but now you are looking at the tax credit income limits. So if you are a two-person household, right, 50% of the area median income for a two-person household is $47,750. So your maximum income that you can earn to qualify for a unit that is affordable to a person making 50% of area median income is about $47,000 in anywhere in those seven counties in New York area. That gets larger as you increase your household size, right? So for a five-person household, maybe two parents and three kids, your maximum income can be $64,000 because you're not taking 50% of the area median income based on your household size. Yeah, I was going to say this always causes a concern because when you think about the different contexts for each of the counties that you mentioned that are included in the fair market area, some people can afford way more than that <laughs> and it's a lot a lot of people can afford way less than that um and it makes me almost think too that there are opportunities to just leave a lot of people out um and uh, simply who benefits from the from this scale um and uh, what 
even just by numbers, what a four person household may need for that for each individual in a household could vary from what a two person household could need, especially thinking about the geography of all the places that are included. Some are more residential, some are more urban. Um, you know, what, what type of living situation would they be able to afford based on their income? So the main criticism of this AMI calculation is that the area, quote unquote area, is too large of a net. It's too broad of a geography. I just talked about New York. Now we all can kind of picture Manhattan, right? Uh, Wall Street, Financial Center of the World, NYU, Columbia, all these great places. But then you have to think the Bronx, much lower income. Then you have places like Putnam County, which are kind of somewhere in the middle. They're more suburban. So the primary criticism of this AMI calculation is that because the area is so large, the median income is not an accurate representation for a unit in a particular location. So I'm just going to give you an example. So in the Bronx, right, if you are a two-person household and you want to rent a unit that is available to someone at, let's say, 80% AMI, so the maximum amount of money that two people can make is $76,000, right? And for them to be able to, anybody making more than that can't rent an affordable unit in the Bronx. Okay, so the challenge here, though, is that in the Bronx, the median household income is only $40,000. So that means that there's a lot of people who would be vying for that two bedroom unit in the Bronx. And a lot, and then in Putnam County, which is north of New York City, the median household income is $104,000. So there's very, there's fewer people vying for that same unit. And so if a unit is available, one unit is available in the Bronx, and you can only make up to $74,000, there's going to be way more people applying for that unit than if that unit was located in Putnam County. And so because the scale is off, it impacts the supply and demand. So a, a lot of advocates have been trying to get the federal government to adjust the area that is used. So instead of thinking about, okay, if I'm building a unit in the Bronx, I need to make it affordable to someone making the percentage of the Bronx's median household income, not the entire metropolitan area of New York City, because then it'd be able to produce the right number of units based on the demand that's in the area. Yeah, I think it's like the area is trying to catch everybody and then they catch nobody at the same time. Um, and I even wonder why, and maybe population growth and distribution of where people lived um, has changed since this system was created. Um, but it just, it doesn't make sense why it would be so large. Like even, even if we look at, and maybe it's by, um, if it's just by land alone, then yeah, maybe it's not as much space as you would think of in another area that's not as densely populated. But when you're thinking of the space alone, in an area like New York that's densely populated, there's so many people that are being left out. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure why the strategy 
was designed this way. My first uh, idea is that it probably makes it simpler, right? Instead of having to come up with a calculation for each county, right, or each city, you have a cal one calculation for seven counties at the same time. And so it makes it easier. It's a less daunting task to figure out the AMI and different percentages and different affordability levels for the units. But just because it's simpler doesn't mean it's effective. Right. And I've even heard it depending on the place, how often they update it. Um, like you would think maybe January one, they would have the new calculations um, every year, but that's not always uh, that's not always the case. And so there could be a lot of changes, especially as we've seen in the last few years about what folks income may have been or what they may qualify for um, that may not match. Yeah, so the the limits change every year, right? So every year HUD produces a new chart for each um, geography, each fair market rent area, saying what the different income limits are. So that happens every year. But there That's are true. so many. Um, I learned new ones and some that I forgot about even just from looking at this episode. So these will be in the show notes, but it's really just a start. Um, and I'm sure I left some out. Um, but the first tool um, from the Economic Policy Institute um, is to look at income inequality. Um, and one of the stats that are pretty alarming, um, but sadly, I'm sure we all know, income inequality has risen in every state since the 1970s. And in most states has grown um, in the post Great Recession area. Um, so from 2009 to 2015, the incomes of the top 1% grew faster than the incomes of the bottom 99% in 43 states and DC. Um, and so just kind of another way to look at that, the top 1% captured half or more of all income growth in nine states. And so that some of those numbers, when you think about it on a national level, it's like, okay, but like, if you say you want to think about it for your metropolitan area, this is how some of the most wealthy people in your region are stacking up um, compared to the people in the lower 99% that do not have that same level of wealth or income. Um, I just want to bring up, Nemo, that year, that 1970 year is relevant because the episode we had running during COVID, we talked about how after 1970, there was a shift in how productivity and wages grew. And so there was a very specific federal fiscal policy and, and social policy that occurred in 1970 that changed the trajectory of the income growth in this country. And so that's just a very critical year. Yeah, thanks for um, bringing that in there. Um, and so that'll be um, linked in the show notes for looking at income inequality. Um, and then the Urban Institute has a tool where you can measure inclusion. Um, and they define overall inclusion as the ability of historically excluded populations, specifically by income and people of color, to contribute and benefit from economic prosperity. And so they break it out by overall inclusion, economic and racial. Um, and they look at that in 274 of the largest cities um, across four decades. And so you can see what cities have become more inclusive and what cities have become less inclusive. Um, I think this is relevant if uh, as cities, a lot of cities have, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, 
have taken it upon themselves to track equity and be mindful about how they talk about equity and are including equity in their comprehensive plans and their land use plans and their transportation plans. This is a time to really kind of look and say, well, this is what you have been doing over the last 40 years. What are you going to do over the next 40 years if what they're saying doesn't match how inclusive the population really is based on income and race? Um, another tool, we mentioned this in episode two, uh, the National Low Income Housing Coalition produced out of reach. Um, and that gets at really what we were just talking about, the gap between renters' wages and the cost of rental housing across the U.S. And so going back to what Jasmine was sharing about HUD's fair market rent or FMR, this looks at what hourly wage someone would need to earn to be able to afford a place to rent without spending more than 30% of their income on housing costs. And the 30% is important, is important because that's the accepted standard of affordability. As you look at your expenses over the month, it's saying that if you're not spending over 30% of your income on housing, then it is deemed to be affordable for you. Um, and so that really just shows the gap between wages and what people have, and then the, how many hours someone has to work to be able to afford what is supposed to be affordable in their area. And then the US Census Bureau, as we talked about, they have a few um, specific tools that they highlight on equity. Um, one of them is the Opportunity Atlas, and that shows um, really on the census track level, it addresses the question, which neighborhoods in America offer children the best chance to rise out of poverty? So specifically looking at opportunity to, you know, uh, prosper and on an economic level. Um, they also highlight the business builder. So it looks at demographics for if you want to open or expand the business resources that you would want to know. Um, and then also their newest resource, the household pulse survey is measuring how co COVID is impacting households across the country from a social and economic perspective. And so that tool is interesting because they really have been like updating it every three months and including new demographic, new questions um, to really see what's going on across the country. And then another tool, the spatial equity data tool, this looks at disparities in the distribution of resources. If you wanna know where libraries are, where grocery stores are, you can see this over in, in space. <laughs> and the cool thing about this is you can upload your own data or you can use sample cases. And if you are interested in finding your own data on that. Um, a lot of cities have open data. So you can search just the city name and open data in Google. Um, and you can find some of those files that you would use if you want to compile your own data. The mapping tools are super cool because you want to see things spatially. It's easier. When, it's hard to look at a chart, right? And it has a zip code on it. And you're like, I don't know where that is or what that looks like. Um, so having it on a map is useful, especially if you're trying to use the data to tell a story, whether you're advocating for something in your community, um, whether you're a planner trying to advocate for a, a different recommendation in a comp plan or anything of the sort. So you're trying to make a determination of where you want to live. Uh, using those tools and having that spatial view is important. Another tool I would just add 
is um, the Trust for Public Land has a cool tool that's called Park Score. And so you type in your city and it will give you a kind of breakdown of all the different parks in the city and will give you a rating on each of the parks quality and then an overall rating for that particular city in relation to other cities. And so relating to that spatial equity data tool is very specific to parks because there's a lot of research done showing that parks and low-income communities and communities of color were under-resourced and under-operated and under-maintained. And just in general, there were fewer of them um, than in high-income and or white communities. And so I think that tools are useful for solving those problems, right? Like that research was coming out finding that, and now you can have a tool that will literally show you on a map okay, this lower income part of Atlanta, for example, has fewer parks than this higher income part of Atlanta. In that same area that only has five compared to 20 parks per person or per 10 people also are the poor, the most poorly rated parks in the city. You can go as your as a constituent and say, look, when the budget meeting is coming out in May or February, whenever it restarts, as the city, you can go back to season one when we talked about how to participate in the budget process. You can go with this data and say, look, there's an issue that's happening. I would really like to see larger investment in parks and transportation or whatever the case may be based on the data that you found. Yeah, and they would likely not be expecting you to come to the table with that because um, sometimes they may not even know. Um, and kind of as we think about how the government works to achieve equity, I would recommend um, the resource uh, Government Alliance for Racial Equity or GARE. Um, they're a network of uh, governments working to achieve racial equity and advance opportunities for all. So they have resources for creating racial equity toolkits, action plans, core teams, and how to measure some of these results. Um, and a lot of cities are starting to track, um, and there's a few good examples to learn from. Um, I would recommend Portland, LA, Austin, and Seattle, um, and they're really kind of leading the charge on tracking some of this demographic health, housing, um, and neighborhood level information. So what are your takeaways, Nemo, from this episode? The goal was to provide everyone, not just professionals, with tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. What are your kind of major takeaways from this episode? Yeah, I think um, hopefully folks can feel inspired um, to once they know the information, they can really demand that accountability, as Jasmine said, involving yourself in the budget process, really presenting the facts. Um, and once you do that, it forces a response um, from, from policymakers. Um, and also, I think people should spread the word. There are, if you're listening, you may have friends or neighbors that are equally concerned about certain issues. There may be things you are complaining about or have concerns about that you can narrow down and put a number to, um, and it could be a great place to start. Um, and then if you're looking at this information because you want to move to a place or you just moved to a place, really understanding the context of the place and learning the history, um, similar to our community engagement episode, there's the reason why these plans exist, some, the reason why some of these tools, what information these tools are pulling from, a lot of that information may be collected already for an, existed per, for an existing purpose or an existing law that was put into place um, to hopefully make your life better, but it still impacts your day-to-day -day life. So how do you take control of some of that information that's already out there? For me, I think the biggest takeaway is arming yourself with data 
right? So taking this episode, coupling it with the episode on community engagement, coupling it with the episode on the budget process, coupling it with the episode where we talked about racism and planning, I really do believe that now there's so much data available and so many already pre-designed tools where you can kind of just like plug and play with your city. And you can truly and honestly, as a constituent, go to these meetings, go meet with your um, your council people, your mayors, your governors, your senators, your representatives, and really, I'm all, I'm, what I guess I'm trying to say is I'm here for community lobbying. The same way that Big Tobacco and Big Farm lobby in Capitol Hill, you can do the same thing right downtown for, for issues that are important to you and your, your community with all of this data. Um, and there's no reason why we can't use the same tools to improve our neighborhoods. Yeah, well said. Um, Jasmine basically just said, turn up. <laughs> we come in <laughs> and this is what we come in with. Um, so we hope you all got something out of this episode. Um, we're excited to bring more episodes like this to you in the future. Um, you can find this every other Tuesday um, on wherever you get your podcast. Um, and you can follow us on social media, on Instagram and Twitter at the number four degrees pod. Peace out, y'all.